Welcome to the Irish Centre for Human Rights podcast series. My name is Hazrat Sitinkaya. On today's episode, we bring you a lecture by Professor Linda Martin Alcoff. This lecture was originally given as a keynote lecture as part of the Sexual Politics of Freedom Conference, which was held online from the 17th to 18th of September 2020. The Sexual Politics of Freedom was a critical feminist theory conference which brought together scholars from all over the world in a project of reimagining feminist politics and its relation to ethics, the self, race, gender and the law in the context of the urgent need to escape what Ratna Kapoor calls the fishbowl of human rights and liberalism. Linda Martin Alcoff is a professor of philosophy at Hunter College, City University of New York. She specializes in feminist epistemology, feminist theory, critical race theory, post-colonial and decolonial thought, as well as continental philosophy. She has authored or edited more than a dozen books, including Visible Identities, The Future of Whiteness, and Rape and Resistance. In Visible Identities, Alcoffs make the case that identities are not like interests, nor do they inevitably lead to essentialism or judgment. For Alcoff, identities are historical formations open to interpretation, but identities such as race and gender also have a powerful visual and material aspect that is often underestimated by social constructionists. What I like most about Linda's work in that book is the ways in which she accounts for the infrastructure of social identities, and this is related to racial subjectivity and people's experience of gender. Linda is very well known for her work in the field of epistemologies as well, and associated for many of us with her book Feminist Epistemologies, co-edited with Elizabeth Potter, a text which many of us will recall encountering for the first day, for the first time in MA seminars on feminist theory or philosophy of social science. Um, Linda's talk today draws upon her most recent book on Raven resistance. In that work, um, Linda compellingly points to how, in the public sphere, discourse around sexual violence, issues of individual responsibility and blaming of minority cultures is often overemphasized. Alka's project, like all good philosophy, is one of complexifying our understanding of the phenomenon at hand, in this case, sexual violation. The book argues, in short, that rather than assuming that all experiences of sexual violence are universal, we need to be more sensitive to the local and personal context. Who is speaking and in what circumstances? That affect how activists and survivors' protests will be received and understood. Talking to us today in the role of our keynote speaker, Linda will address the question of transforming our sexual lives as she works with and beyond Foucault in thinking sexual pluralism and the relation between desire, sexuality, violence, and moral judgment. Due to our technical issue, the first two minutes of our recording has been lost. However, what follows is the substance of the lecture given by Professor Alcoff. We hope you enjoyed this lecture and continue to support and attend events at the Irish Center for Human Rights. I want to argue that um, the problem of sexual violations cannot be treated as distinct from the problem of sexuality the, the ubiquity of sexual violation in, in our lives is obviously re related to what is taken to be, what we take to be routine, everyday sex, right? Morally blameless sex, the facts of pleasure and desire. So what we have to bring into the frame of analysis, as many have argued, is what counts as normal or commonplace sex. 
as well as what counts as normative or morally blameless sex. That's what we have to focus on to think about sexual violence and sexual violation. What is the idea of sex in any given time and place that governs our self-regulations, informing our self-evaluations, and establishing what our focal points of concern should be? And how do ideas about normative gender identities intersect with ideas about normative sex? So the idea of setting up normative evaluations of our sexual lives in the form of should and should not prescriptions strikes some today as a very bad path to take because we've had a lot of really bad normativity um, for many centuries to deal with. Um, so some argue it is not desire that's the problem. If we just focus on the act rather than judgments of our sexual desires or our sexual lives, we will be on firmer ground. And I think the fact that social ideas have been, social ideas about sex have been wrong for so long has led to uh, an, an understandable antipathy um, toward moral judgments in sexual matters. We mistrust our own capacity to judge the desires and needs of others. And we also mistrust the experts, whether they're religious experts or scientific experts, for good reasons, right? Non-conventional gender presentations are still characterized by some leading psychologists as an indication of mental illness. So it's that retreat from, you know, uh, what are the sources of judgment? I can't judge other people's desires. The experts cannot lead me toward judging other people's desires um, that, that has led to this, uh, this uh, antipathy toward normativity. There's a recent uh, S, um, special issue of the journal Differences that was edited by Elizabeth Wilson and Robin Weekman, and they discussed the ways in which they say, quote, a defense against normativity is a guiding tenet of queer theory. And they, they argue that, um, you know, clearly this comes from the fact that normativity has been a key aspect of oppression. To norm something is to say what is normal and what is not, what is good and what is not. And thus it is to rank, to exclude, and often to shame. Um, and for Butler famously, identities are inherently oppressive because they operate as norms. But I think this special issue by um, Robin Wiegman and Elizabeth Wilson helpfully opens up a much needed debate over the philosophical justification and normative implications of a blanket anti-normativity. Norms and normativity have been too often, I think, linked to Foucault's critical analysis of normalization. And so it leads to a kind of easy slide from the powerful chastising effects of discourses about the normal to the idea that normative evaluation in any form is founded in exclusion and repudiation. The category of sexual violation, though, <laughs> is undeniably a normative concept that requires judging sexual acts and sexual desires. And I think we've, we've tried to like 
minimize this through focusing only on consent and not focusing on the kinds of desires and the kinds of acts that have happened. Um, relying on consent is the main way many have argued we should normatively distinguish between good and bad sexual practices. But there's been, um, you know, a couple of decades now of really good feminist philosophical critique of consent and showing that consent is always embedded within structures that pose challenges for low status groups of, of all sorts. As many have argued, consent can be a very poor indicator of desire or will. And, you know, Nicola Gavey's research has shown that consent can simply be a means to avoid violence, to avoid getting beat up, to avoid discord, or to avoid the loss of vital relationships. As one comedian quipped, the principal way in which women consent may be with the words, oh, all right. So the norm that we're really after when we champion the concept of consent is, is obviously something greater than resignation, something closer to a willful desire that emerges within an empowered position in which saying no would not produce substantively ill effects, economic, physical, or emotional. So just to um, summarize very quickly the critique of consent, it is inadequate as a means to get at will or desire, which is what, as feminists, we should really be after. It sidesteps the question, obviously, of the social construction of desire and of will. So although we want to get at desire and will, that in itself is not sufficient because our will and our desires are obviously subject to social constructions in a variety of ways. Also, um, uh, as some have argued, and I agree, consent is a kind of libertarian dodge, right? Because you're not judging the practice itself or the desires itself. You're not engaging in a normative analysis of sexual practices or pleasures. So it's kind of a clean and easy dodge that presents itself as politically adequate when it in no way is. What I add to these and other critiques of consent is the phenomenological inadequacy of consent also in regard to our sexual lives. Consent uh, still connotes the concept of contracts, where it comes from, as Carol Pateman showed, the idea that I'm consenting from time T1 to time T2 to engage in a certain kind of act or provide a service. Um, there's now, you know, an app that you can get on your, your smartphone to, sh to consent to an encounter, which really, you know, is a way for um, uh, mostly men to have a record <laughs> that they can then show afterward that they have, um, you know, that they got consent before the encounter happened. But of course, this is completely inadequate because you might consent at time T1 and at time T2, uh, feel differently, want to withdraw, your partner is moving in directions you're not wanting to move into. And so the idea that you can consent at this time over a range of moments is phenomenologically inadequate because it's not the way the body works. I cannot guarantee that my desire, my will will be sustained over 
um, you know, a period of time like that. I can give the use of my body, but I can't consent in the sense of, of um, committing my desire or my will. So consent is, is really inadequate. I'm not arguing that consent should be eradicated, um, and I'm not putting forward what I'm going to offer as the alternative sexual subjectivity as adequate to the courts. Consent has made some positive developments in the, the arena of the courts, but I'm arguing that the courts are a very limited domain. It should not be the primary domain that we work in when we're trying to think about sexual freedom and sexual liberation. Um, as, as many of you who are lawyers know, the court is a very constrained conversation in which what can be said about what is, is extremely limited. And uh, if you are trying to convince a judge or a jury, you're going to make very conservative discursive rhetorical moves because you're, you're trying to work with their ideologies, you're not going to be challenging their ideologies nine times out of 10. So the courts um, are very important and I support the reform movements of the courts and consent can be useful in the courts, but we have to think beyond the courts to think about sexual justice and to think about the transformation of our sexual lives. So um, since we can't rely on or be satisfied completely with stated consent, determining how to draw the boundaries of the category of sexual violation brings us squarely into the domain of norming sexual practices, even those which may appear to be consensual, right? So then the question is, what is the criteria that we use to rely on to distinguish benign sex and sexual violation? And this is no easy question. The problem is not just our conduct and our beliefs, our arousal patterns and our fantasies, but our sexual subjectivity as a whole or our capacity to be agents of our sexual lives. So I want to argue that norming sexual practices should take our sexual subjectivity as the most important criterion in defining sexual violation. And I take a page from Foucault's concept of technologies of the self here, in which the focus is not on discovering or expressing our innate, supposedly, sexuality, but on making or fashioning a sexual self. And with this approach, liberation comes to mean less of a concordance between our um, natural or normal sexuality, all of these things should be in quotes, then it is an ability to engage in the process of making our sexual selves. And I, I want to argue, unlike Foucault, emphasize unlike Foucault, that this is necessarily a social and collective praxis of making our sexual selves. So human sexual desires, pleasures, and practices are obviously malleable. They're subject to historical and social context. They vary both synchronically and diachronically. So we need an approach that remains open-ended, right? Rather than coming up with a list of, of politically correct practices, we need an approach that can remain open-ended, making it possible to avoid closing off future transformations. And then we can fashion norms, not around object choice or sexual position, but in relation to agency and mutuality and care for others 
as well as ourselves. The way in which oppression and domination operate in our sexual lives is not determined by the range of things we can do or even the range of pleasures we can have. All sorts of pleasures can coexist with manipulation, domination, even trauma. Focus on our capacity to participate in the social collective and individual processes of creating sexual ideas, conventions, forms of relationality, and practices. So then the question shifts from whether I have a sexual self capable of pleasure, and that's a, that's been an important question certainly for many rape survivors, but it, it shifts to the question of whether I have the ability to participate in the making of our sexual self. So if our aim is simply to allow individuals to act on their sexual selves, we end up sanctioning problematic forms of heteronomy in which I merely act out the scripts I have been given. We need to shift from a concern with discovery or expression to a concern with the practice of making. And this will direct our concern of how to norm sex. The practices that need to be normatively circumscribed will be those that hinder or shut down these technologies of our sexual selves. So what Foucault's work um, is useful for is precisely because he complicates the conventional ideas about how we can achieve sexual agency. In particular for Foucault, agency does not occur in a free space outside of power or discourse. And I think this is a much more <clears throat> realistic view. The concept, <clears throat> sorry, of sexual subjectivity as I'm going to develop it is meant to be more expansive than the question of whether we can operate without constraint on our sexual choices. And in that sense, I think um, this is a more Foucauldian approach than, for example, Gail Rubin's libertarian approach, which she puts forward as a Foucauldian approach. I don't think it, her approach is um, Foucauldian. If on the libertarian view, to have agency is to be free from constraint, on a Foucauldian view, agency involves, as he says, quote, always present potentiality of the subjects to alter, unsettle, and invest the power relations they are shaped by, unquote. And this involves having a consciousness about my sexual practices and being able to participate in the thoughtful um, formation of my sexual will or sexual self. He explained that his concern was, quote, not simply with the acts that were permitted and forbidden, but with the feelings represented, the thoughts, the desires one might experience. And he went on to describe technologies of the self as matrices of practical reason directed toward the formation of our self or subjectivity, quote, that permit individuals to affect their own means or with the help of others, a certain number of operations on their own bodies and souls, thoughts, conduct, and way of being so as to transform themselves in order to attain a certain state of happiness, purity, wisdom, perfection, or immortality, unquote. So notice how variable and pluralistic pro such projects of concern for the self might be. 
they would include on Foucault's own view, the cultivation, for example, of religious modes of pious life. They may include asceticism. They may include sadomasochism and so on. Technologies of the self are not techniques of normalization, but of expansive self-making. So Foucault's principal interest was not in what our end point or our specific goal is in such practices, but in the mindful process of a bodily engagement on oneself. He developed this idea, of course, through his research on ancient Greek practices of concern with the self in which the moral problematics were not focused on the objects of desire so much as on our general mode of conducting our sexual lives. And the goal was not an individual act or feeling, but a mode of comporting oneself more generally as a social being. And one of the things that I think is important about this ancient uh, work is that people were, were thinking, they didn't have the public-private distinction that we have. So what was going on in their sexual lives was always thought about in relationship to their social lives and how it would affect their social comportment in other kinds of domains. So Foucault's point was that we need to shift the concern about power and agency to a kind of meta level, not at the point of actual choice, but at the practices and discourses by which choices come into existence as intelligible and as desirable. So if we understand the social construction of sexual experience um, in this way, it yields no decisive conclusions about the underlying nature of human sexuality, right? Other than its mercurial character. But this raises the question, what of politics, what of morality? Um, do we simply support the uh, absolute changeability without judgment? I'm, I'm obviously arguing not. In the final volumes of his Unfinished History of Sexuality, Foucault turns to a transvaluation of ethical approaches towards sexual practices. And he uses the contrasting example of ancient Greek and Roman worlds, and to a lesser extent, he also refers to ancient parts of Asia, to suggest a way of focusing not on the what, but on the how. The licentious Greek male citizens were free to sexually engage with all sorts of partners, but they had norms still about how it was to be done. Object choice did not determine one's moral status. What was important was one's sexual character and the idea of cultivating an ethics of the sexual self. What this amounts to in today's parlance, I'd suggest, is a, is a kind of mindfulness. I hate the word mindfulness, but it, it does suggest this um, approach that you take a mindful approach toward your pleasures, not simply to follow a doctrine. Un um, unfortunately, this is generally approached as an individual matter too often, given that Foucault wants to redefine ethics not as a relation between self and others, but all, always as a relation of self to self. And I think that relation of self to self is, is, is important and one we want to retain, but I think it's not sufficient as an ethics. So I want to suggest that the relation of self to itself is also intellectually collective and social. And I'll do this through um, an example in this last section. Um, in Trisha Rose's collection of interviews about sexuality by black women, 
A woman named Luciana recounts an event in her early life that both revealed her sexual subjectivity at the time and subsequently affected its transformation. Luciana sees a guy she knew. She started hanging out with him, and then she followed him when he claimed to need to go to his place to pick up something. Since she knew him, she says, quote, I didn't even think in that direction that he might cause me harm. Instead of going to his place, however, he proceeded to take her to a hotel. Seeing this, Luciana initially declined to follow him into the room. But he said to her in a tone that she thought was kind of caring that she shouldn't just sit out in the car. And she says, and like a dummy, I went in with him, and that hurt. It makes me more mad than anything else, not even so much that he raped me, but for the fact that I was dumb enough to have let him put me in that position. Of course, now I don't ride in anybody's car. I have very few dates. It still lingers. Now I'm kind of weird with all my friends, unquote. So Luciana blames herself and we might take this as internalized oppression. But it is also expressive of the, the reasonable belief that she had not cultivated a sufficiently protective form of sexual subjectivity and agency. In hindsight, she thinks, she should have been more wary and more assertive. Luciana's shame is directed at her own actions and decisions or her relation to herself. And again, this is reasonable in social contexts where self-protection is the only form of protection that one can rely on, which is clearly in her context. But her subsequent life is transformed by this determination to maintain a watchful and cautious eye on her own responses and choices in every interaction. Reporting the rape or even disclosing it to anyone would bring about nothing positive, she believes. So she endeavors to change herself. So I think we can attribute Luciana's transformed social interactions and personality both to her assailant's act, but also to her heightened and judgmental vigilance toward her own choices and mindset. The internal direction of her vigilance reflects her fatalism about any other manner of protection. And this particular and quite common reaction to a rape, I think, needs to be contextualized to the specific norms or conventions of female sexual subjectivity against which Luciana judges herself inadequate and finds herself to be blameworthy for what she experienced. In this context, one may feel oneself to have only um, one of two choices, perpetual wariness and restraint or repeated violation. But what overdetermines Luciana's sense of having only this restricted scope of choice is the entirely reasonable assumption that no one is going to intervene, no social institution is going to provide her protection or justice. So it's not only the rape that changes her relation to herself, but the social context that protects rapists. So we might ask, what might her sexual subjectivity be in a different context? Um, so um, 
what I want to um, uh, argue here is is that clearly and conclude here as I, I get toward my conclusion is that sexual violations transform us. Both victims and perpetrators are transformed as well as their families, their friends, and their social circles. Just the knowledge that such events are real possibilities in one's life, however remote, has an impact even on those who have had no direct experience of them. What is violated, I, I want to argue, is our sexual subjectivity meaning our capacity for having sexual agency in our lives. So the moral harm of sexual violation is on our sexual subjectivity. As a concept then, sexual subjectivity provides an alternative to the singular focus on the violations of our consent. In essence, our central concern with sexual violations should be their inhibiting and transformative effects on sexual self-making capacities. And this can be thought about both on an individual and a collective level. Collectively, the epidemic of sexual violation in the lives of specific targeted groups, often identified by their age, their gender, their sexuality, and or their race, severely constricts the possibilities for their self-directed formation. Foucault's conception of the art of caring for the self as the work of ourselves on ourselves as free beings um, is very useful here. I think we can find resources for a politically useful, open-ended account of sexual subjectivity that resists reification tendencies as well as normalizing approaches and can help us articulate the precise effects of sexual violation or what it is that has been violated without assuming a kind of developmental teleology or that there exists a single norm for a correct or well-formed sexual subjectivity. So the point is not to judge how our sexuality develops, for example, along a normalizing process, but how our sexual subjectivity develops as a practice of self-making. Um, so, in this slide, I want to make four final claims. First, a central way to understand sexual violation is to consider its effects on our capacity to become effective agents involved in the making of our sexual selves. Effective agency requires a sphere of exploration and experimentation and the hermeneutical space to generate our own interpretations of our experiences and our desires. Current practices of the self for vulnerable groups too often mainly involve exhortations to learn modes of self-defense, to exercise daily routines of caution, and to cultivate resilience in the face of trauma. The general orientation of this practice bespeaks a fatalism and diminution of exploration as if self-regard can only be made manifest, especially for women and girls, in a form of self-protection. What we need is rather an enlarged idea of one's relation to one's sexual self beyond the goal of protection and harm avoidance. Such diminished agendas look plausible only in light of the epidemic of violation in context of social indifference. Second, I want to argue that the movement of survivors and our allies to denaturalize abuse, assault, and rape 
and to formulate new languages by which we describe and understand our experiences is a reworking of moral problematizations concerning various kinds of norms that involve gender, moral relations, and sexuality. This is to say not that there is a uniform set of ideas and practices emerging from anti-rape movements, but that there is a concerted engagement in with, with um, existing norms, problematics, and practices in every context, such as the practice of remaining silent in the face of violation. In particular, what is occurring, and it's global, is an attempt to formulate moral problematizations that avoid self-blame on the part of victims and instead place blame elsewhere, perhaps individual perpetrators, but also institutional cultures and general social norms of sexual interaction. And there, I think the movements in Latin America, neonomenos, neonomas, um, have been really central. Sometimes the, the, the word femicide gets portrayed in this way that, that robs it of the meaning it has in Latin America, which is very much a critique of the police, of the justice system, of the government, and uh, not simply focusing on a kind of uh, culture that produces individual perpetrators. Third, I want to urge against taking the concept of consent as the sufficient standalone criterion of violation. And some may argue that given the sorts of problems with the concepts concept I discussed, we could we could expand it to something like authentic consent, right? Some people think, well, yes, consent has these problems, but we can revise and expand it. And I think that's good to explore. But in my view, building in all that we need into the concept of consent moves it too far afield of the everyday meaning of the term. For the concept of authentic consent would have to address more than whether a person says yes or declines to say no. I've argued that the better approach is to take the more expansive notion of sexual subjectivity and understand this as including consent as well as desire, pleasure, will, and most importantly, one's concernful and agential self-making relation to oneself. And fourth, finally, I wanna argue that we might take up this concept of sexual subjectivity in relation to the idea of an art of existence to ask for both victims and others, what practices of the self might we imagine as helpful correctives in this moment? And what forms of self-cultivation are possible beyond self-protection? Posing these questions helps to restore a fuller sense of agency in relation to our sexual lives. And I'd suggest it will also help the larger publics to see that what is happening in youth cultures, in social resistance communities of all sorts, are all part of the attempt not to police sexuality, but to cultivate the conditions in which new forms can be invented. Thanks very much. Thank you so much, Linda. That was an amazing talk and really inspiring. Um, and made me at least rethink uh, in ways that we can also use the later Foucault. Um, I'm gonna open up the floor. So if anyone has questions for Linda, please uh, raise your hand or write in the chat box or unmute yourself. Um, can I begin? Yes, of course. Great. 
Um, I, I, I was hesitant to begin, but nobody else was going first. Um, thank you so much. I enjoyed that talk so much, and it was so rich, and there's an awful lot that it'll take me some time to process. Um, but I, I just wanted to ask quite simply, the concept, I think one of the things that has caused consent to have so much traction is that perhaps as a result of an awful lot of work, it has become a concept that is quite easily communicated. Um, and it, it has a sort of a, a meme effect. It's, you know, kind of it's, it's out there now um, in, the, in the public sphere in a very, very powerful way. Um, and I suppose the idea of sexual subjectivity, which is far more nuanced um, and gets much, much closer to the heart of, of what freedom might feel like, is a far more difficult thing to imagine teaching um, or to imagine rolling out um, in the practice. And I suppose I'm really, really conscious of these questions because I have nine-year-old children who are just beginning now in their engagement with the education system um, to learn things in a formal public way um, about their bodies and their rights. And I can see how the notion of consent is being used to deliver this training. So I just wonder, what are your thoughts about, you know, kind of the practical application of more complex, nuanced ideas like sexual subjectivity? Yeah, that's a great question, because you're asking about sort of the real world of, of uh, the sexual discourse and feminist discourse around sexuality, not just the courts, but the ways, what, you know, the, 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 a lot of youth cultures are focusing now on, on consent. Um, and I think one way we might think of it is that consent is a good first step. And the problem is when we take it as sufficient. So at, at nine, you can get the concept of consent. Maybe at 16, you can begin to think about uh, a little bit more than consent. Because clearly, um, you know, consent is, is, is insufficient. And I think the focus on it, and people have been very afraid for, you know, there's so much going on these days. I, I really admire uh, I've learned from my kids um, so much about polyamory, you know, about kink, about all these different, um, which which were, you know, many of inspired by um, LGBT sort of movements from the 70s that Foucault was involved in to, to create, you know, to say, okay, now we're out, but, but what is that, you know, that doesn't mean that we have to do things in the same way that heteronormative practices have been. So let's, let's, so there was a process of collective self-making. There is a process of collective self-making going on now. Um, and I think that's been very important. But I think that it, it's limited to some extent sometimes when the focus is, is just, you know, it has a kind of libertarian approach, remove constraints to polyamory, trumps like, ter you know, Pence is we're having this whole conversation in this country about, about polyamory. Um, so remove constraints to kink, remove constraints to polyamory, remove constraints to public sex or whatever it is. And then everything's fine because people don't want to, to engage in, but, and I think, I think uh, the actual work of engaging in normative analysis of particular practices 
is going to be best done within communities. So I don't think it's going to be universal, everybody judging. It's like within a, like happened in um, gay male communities in particular in the 1970s, people were engaging in this collective dialogue and collective practice. Uh, you know, set of practices around an art of sexual existence um, to rethink norms and 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 to some extent to think about norms. Some of it was libertarian, just removing constraints, but some of it was also um, very much thinking reflectively about um, norms in a broader way or goals, right? Uh, goals of 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 a way of having sexual lives in a in a broader and deeper way. So I think that um, that's uh, it, it's not necessarily it doesn't necessarily require us to say that consent is not an important feature. What it does require us, though, is to say at some point, and I think in the in the realm of of feminist activism and feminist and theory, it's already happening, is to say that consent is is not the final word. It's not sufficient. It, and, and, and in fact, it's problematic when we do take it as sufficient. It may not be problematic if we don't take it as sufficient, but it is, it is problematic if we take it as sufficient because it can conceal a lot of, of the ways in which power is operating in our sexual lives. Thank you, Linda, and thank you, Carol, for the question. Um, I have a question here in the chat box from Fernanda. Um, and she says, I'd like to ask Linda to expand on the uses of victim and survivor in the context of sexual violences. What are the effect of the expression and the discussion about sexuality and the construction of sexual subjectivity? Yeah, these terms have been um, subject to a lot of debate and critique. And I think it's, it's interesting because the concern is about, in a way, how we're constructing the subjectivity right, of people who have experienced these kinds of events. These terms have an effect on our sense of our, of our own selves um, in relation to uh, sexual agency. Victims seem so reifying and so essentializing, like it's an identity from birth to death that, de that determines everything. And, and people are still, you know, when you, when you come out as a, as a, as a rape survivor, what, what is really... Um, difficult in, in many societies, including many Western societies, that still becomes a central framework by which other people judge. That's why she's a feminist. That's why she takes this position on a particular political position. So it becomes like the, the determining <laughs> causal analysis of, of everything that you do. I've been the, the subject of that um, when I was a whistleblower in sexual harassment case. And it was perceived as, um, my, my judgment of the case was perceived as, uh, as biased, uh, subjective because of my own experience, rather than what I think makes more sense is that those of us who have been victimized often have epistemic privilege about seeing the signs of it, judging the signs of it, knowing the subtle signs of it from the beginning. So it, it, should, it should give us epistemic privilege, but it gives us the exact reverse, a kind of reverse empiricism, I call it, in regard to certain kinds of, of, uh, of oppressive experiences. So I, I think, and in, in, I've been in many, many different uh, support groups and activist circles and 
I, I see that people use both often. Um, there's a number of folks who say they don't feel like a survivor yet. You go into support groups, they'll say, I, I just don't feel like I'm there yet. So they, they feel uncomfortable with the term survivor. So there's people who feel uncomfortable with the term survivor just as others feel uncomfortable with the term victim. So we, we go back and forth often and, and look for other terms. Clearly, it, it is not a reification that shouldn't be seen as the causal explanation. And there may be, you know, it's possible for some people to think um, at some point this is going to be less of a large issue in my life. Maybe right now it's an issue I can't really set aside, but maybe at some point in the future, um, it's not that I won't be a victim, but that I will, it will be a smaller part of, of the hermeneutics of my existence, so to speak. Um, and so we can maybe not transcend victimization, but move to different to different spaces. So I, I you know, I, I just sort of noticed this, I don't have a solution to it. But I think it's important to realize that as much criticism as there has been of the word victim, there's also been a lot of criticism of the word survivor or concern that the word survivor doesn't work for everybody who has experienced uh, rape trauma. And so we, we, we have to take that very seriously. We have to take very seriously those with the experiences, um, their uh, need and their articulation of what terms work for them. There may be plural answers to this. Um, it may be contextual. There may be a temporal dimension, but we need to um, and, and you know, and, and and also recognize that no term is going to be perfect. I'm curious. Do you have a thought on this, Fernanda, that you can share? Um, I think Fernanda is an, uh, in an on, uh, in a public place, and that's why she couldn't um, ask on camera. Um, if it's okay, I'm gonna let uh, Kanum ask a question. Kanum, you can unmute yourself if you want. Yeah. Um, hi there. Um, sorry, I can't turn my camera on. I'm in bed still. <laughs> but uh, thank you for that talk, Linda. It was um, really um, exciting. Uh, I have a couple of thoughts. I'm going to try and focus in on them. Um, one, just the story you shared from Trisha Rose's work, um, it made me think about the more... Um, recent, not so recent trend within sort of a newer generation of our children of feminists, for instance. And uh, I've had encounters with friends, um, really progressive feminist friends, um, where this sort of new, this trend of asking if you can hug a child, um, you know, or children asking to, uh, you know, between even our children, the interactions being sort of very, what struck me was odd the first time it happened, right? Sort of, I have boys uh, who I really, work hard to cultivate as sort of more open, loving um, people, but respectful <laughs> boys, how to raise them, you know, how to raise boys in this world. And um, sort of interactions with other feminist progressive friends where, you know, a child hugging another child at age two or something or five or something, sort of like the training of to verbalize, like, let's ask permission if X can hug Y, like at ages two, three, four, five. And um, so I, I remember being really struck by that. Um, 
it's clearly connected to the example that you give from Tisha Rose and sort of the ways in which we enact boundaries and enforce them. It comes from, I mean, I guess what I'm, what I'm concerned with is um, there, there's a sort of a further atomization or a further intense boundedness that actually comes about from the act of, so from the experience of violation or the knowledge that a society won't protect you either, you know, sort of the, the violation of boundaries leads to sort of this retreat, which uh, as a feminist stance often, I mean, it's similar to what you're talking about in terms of consent. So I just thought about that. Um, but as a question, I guess I'm interested in two quick things. I'll try and make them quick. One, if you could talk a little bit more about this collective process through which we can sort of rethink sort of the, what, what is the collective? Like, I mean, you talked about feminicide a little bit and what that term encapsulates. Um, what would that look like a little more if you could flesh that out? And secondly, I'm really interested in this idea of, you know, in consent where you mentioned sort of from T1 to T2, time T1 to T2, one's desire or one's interest or one's sort of openness to touch or um, one's senses or feelings may change. Um, is it possible, do you think, to sort of actually come up with an instrument? I mean, that's what we do. We instrumentalize. <laughs> I know you're saying that it shouldn't be so fixed and create new norms, but can you, can, can you talk a little more about what that would, what that could possibly look like rather than this sort of really rigid notion of consent that we, uh, we are stuck with right now? So I'll stop right there. I hope that was clear enough. Yeah, great questions, Kanem. Thank you. Yeah, I think this issue of, of the question, can I hug you, being, and it's used in kindergarten, you know, in daycare centers, is, you know, we need to think about what kind of sex, sexual subjectivity is being produced by that. So um, it's important to do because Lord knows there's, you know, the child sexual abuse is an epidemic uh, in, in the United States, I know, and in, in some other societies, it's an absolute epidemic. It is absolutely not taken seriously by the courts. But, but we also need to ask the question, like, what kind of sexual subjectivity are we grooming in, um, in small children when they are inculcated in this self-protective sort of mode of, of intimacy and of physical touch? There's some really good work out on that, um, and I can't remember the name, but there's a young philosopher who has just published a book looking at this kind of self-protective sexual subjectivity that's being cultivated, especially among young girls, especially sometimes among young white girls, right? Um, and, you know, what are the, the sort of limitations and problems of that? So clearly we need to, um, validate the idea of recognizing that everybody doesn't experience a hug in the same way, right? Victims of, of abuse may experience a hug quite differently than other people experience a hug. So, so we have to acknowledge that and, and um, develop our thinking about that. We have to acknowledge uh, individual rights to, to control their physical space and empower children to have a sense of control over their physical space. But we also have to think about the effects of, of, of sexual protection. I mean, I, I argue that when, when I was nine and, and experienced sexual violation, 
there was no after school specials. There was no language. There was no self protection. There was it was like uh, completely invisible in in the public domain. So I think in some ways making it more visible in the public domain um, is a positive thing. It's a positive move. And what we want to do is uh, think about how we're making it visible in the public domain. What is being made visible? What is not being made visible there? Um, I once stood up in a uh, meeting at my child's daycare center and said, because they were talking about, you know, how the, the, the teachers are, are very careful if a, if a child has needs to be wiped or has, uh, you know, their zipper down, they, you know, they don't touch them. And I stood up and said, look, I'm an, I'm a survivor of child sexual abuse. I want to get, I want you to give my little four-year-old boy a hug. I want you to put my little four-year-old boy on your lap and and give him give him comfort when when he needs it when it's appropriate. Um, and so you know that in a, some ways was a collective process. It was good that we had that meeting. This was a public daycare center. It was good that we had that meeting and we could actually have a discussion and hear from a diverse set of parents about these matters. So that's the kind of collective process that can be very local. It can be very specific. Um, there also obviously needs to be thought about how it is in the media, but you know that kind of collective process in which we um, negotiate these things. I think the, the, the question about the time T1 and T2 is very important too. Um, prostitutes are reporting that the majority of times when they get raped or sexually violated is because of an abrogation of this. So they contract, in a sense, to do a certain kind of, of practice. And in the middle, um, the John forces them to do another kind of practice that they did not agree to. And they experience this as a violation. And of course, there's nothing that they can do about it because um, they're uh, contracting to, to um, participate in sexual uh, engagement with somebody is just taken as a carte blanche, but they experience it phenomenologically very much as a violation because they did not agree to this change of practices. So there's some really smart legal theorists, um, a woman at, uh, at uh, uh, Washington University in St. Louis, who's on the, 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 and I can think of her name at some point, but she's been doing work on what would employment protections be well how how could we rewrite employment protections for sex workers that could address these very specific forms of occupational health and safety and harassment um, challenges that sex workers experience and I think this is the kind of work that needs needs to happen is is um, is, is how to think about, um, and it's in a, in a sense, it's an instrument, as you suggest, of ways in which you can control and make it possible to claim violation, right? To claim harassment, even as a sex worker, on the grounds that um, you could, you, the contract covered certain things, but not other things. I think in terms of other, um, 
non-sex worker encounters the practice of affirmative consent has been put forward precisely for this reason and it's been lampooned by comedians but the idea is that you 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 state your consent at you know what we used to say was um um first base and then you have to state your consent again at second base and then you have to state your consent again at third base right you go and it's 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 kind of ridiculous but Lois Pinot has argued that affirmative consent makes a lot of sense for hookup culture, for one night stands, for engagements where you don't know the person and they don't know you and you don't have that kind of emotional attunement that you have in long term relationships. In a long term relationship, you don't need to give affirmative consent at every step. But in a, um, uh, a one night stand, that sort of thing, affirmative consent can that's that's has this temporal dimension this is ongoing dimension can be a way to um uh to, to take the place of automatic emotional attunement that we would have with somebody um in a in a long-term relationship i mean the word consent the etymology of the word consent is a feeling with and that's not a bad you know, basis from which to think about what the norms of interaction should be, a mutuality, a reciprocity, a feeling with, a feeling together. Thank you, Linda. Um, Sue has a question for you. Yeah, so I think I'm continuing this uh, uh, conversation that's, um, you know, taken up by Hanum as well in, in Linda's uh, answer, you know, about what the collective process is. So, you know, my question really is about whether we have thought too much about subjectivity as inhering in individuals rather than being something that is intersubjectively constructed anyway and relationally constructed. So, you know, the question would be whether there are good arguments for considering the role of relational and collective or intersubjective sexual subjectivity formation and what we can do. Because I'm thinking about that slide that you talked about, Linda, into the libertarian position of it's just about removing constraints, that's all it is. And you know that the people who hold a libertarian position also hold some really weird conservative oppressive ideas and that are completely arbitrary, you know, and very constraining. But, you know, somehow this is slide. And I think that the reason why there is a slide is because somehow the pivot is too, it's kind of, you think about a, a seesaw, you know, that the pivot is too much on this sliding the whole conversation towards the, the individual and what's constraining the individual and that all the problems in the world are caused by constraints on the individual in a, some kind of consent market or weird thing like that. And whether, you know, what the work is to move the pivot back towards being able to have other kinds of conversations, you know, what, where, where you want the 16 year old to be able to be at and also reflecting on what was missing for the nine year old that you uh, that you described yourself as being you know re referring to uh, and the problem of fundamentally the problem i think was hermeneutical injustice because the resources did not exist in the social setup to understand what was going on 
So that's hermeneutical, hermeneutical injustice. So maybe part of that is in creating the, you know, what, what's the work that has to be done in, in this conversation that we are having? And where should we push, you know, think about the pivot and move the pivot, I think. I, so it's a little few different points there, I think. But, you know, I think you probably make sense of it anyway. Sorry if it's not very clear. That's great, So I totally agree. We should write something together on this. I mean, I think one way to think about um, the child sexual abuse kind of stuff, to think about, to use my own case uh, when I was nine, we can, I can look now with a lot of therapy at the ways in which my sexual subjectivity was formed in relation to that experience of a, of a traumatic um, series of events. But the ways in which my sexual subjectivity was formed is not simply because of that moment of trauma. It was because it was in, I was unable to articulate it, to, to tell people for 10 years. Um, and then, uh, you know, and, and the, the subsequent sort of uh, bad reactions I got from, from a variety of peoples. So my sexual subjectivity is not just traceable to a rape trauma at nine, it's traceable to a whole culture um, uh, juridical and uh, ideological and so forth that made possible certain kinds of, of conversations and understandings and, and made others invisible to me. So that's, you know, clearly it's that collective, it, you know, and unfortunately a lot of the anti-rape stuff, that there's an, a recent documentary called The Hunting Ground, which is about the epidemic of sexual violence on college campuses. And it continues to, it's a, it's a useful documentary. I, I recommend watching it, but it perpetuates this idea of individual pathology. So, so rapists are also seen as having innate desires that um, are, you know, are just kind of natural innate desires in a certain portion of the population. Their desires are also not seen as, as socially constructed. So I think, yeah, pivoting, as you call it, to the move to think about um, uh, the possibility, and, and obviously this needs to be an interdisciplinary project with the social sciences, but also I think with the humanists about all of the elements that create the infrastructure that have an effect on, on desire. And I think, you know, I think understandably many marginalized sexual communities have have sort of fallen into the libertarian framework of of release from constraint of expression you know of of that being um the ultimate goal because because that has been what has been blocked what has been the subject of so much violence if there is expression and but i think it's really a problem and you know my interest is uh, libertarianism comes it's on the right wing it's but there's a left wing version of it it's not always identified as such sometimes it is and that's what i'm really after is the people who think of themselves as progressive but who have a really inadequate idea of what it would mean to um to really move forward in a in a substantive way um in regard to questions of sexual violation as well as our sexual lives in general thank you sue for the question and linda um arpita has a question as well uh, hi, uh, thank you so much for the wonderful talk. And uh, my question kind of um, 
piggybacks on Sue's question. So I I really like the idea of what you proposed, and it has made me. I work on sexual violence as well, so it it is making me think a lot. I'm still thinking, but the first question kind of that came to my mind is. Um, so the idea of cultivating the awareness of sexual self can we can we do that without a broader um, structural uh, awareness of what it means you know what i mean is that exactly what you said like there is a part of the leftist for example we will see that sexual violence is very common among leftist uh, student uh, groups in india right so uh, in a, in societies like, for example, in India, where the first awareness of our own sexuality as women is the awareness of protection, protecting ourselves from harm, right? So it's not about, the, the discourse never becomes about exploration. The discourse never becomes about freedom or even about the question of what my sexuality is. The predominant occupation in terms of sexuality in societies where the debate of consent hasn't even started is primarily about protection from uh, sexual violence. And from a very young age, we are constantly taught to, to protect ourselves, to not go anywhere where we can put ourselves in that harm, right? So, it, uh, the, so my question basically is that so the, the ideas around, I think your formulation is, is so thought-provoking and so engaging. Uh, but it, I think as a promise, it needs that whole debate of consent because you're, you're coming from a place for, I, I think, where the, the discourse of consent has been happening for a long time. Whereas uh, for, uh, when I think of the idea you're proposing from a place where there is absolutely no discussion about consent, where marital rape is still legal, I am I, I, I'm, and I'm thinking of how this what you're proposing can be operationalized in such a social space. I I, I kind of think like it, it is like, like a step consent as a step needs to like we need to go through consent in order to reach where you we are you are proposing we go. So what do you think about that? Yeah, that's great. Um, I I think that. We need to go through consent, but we also need to critique and be wary of the ways in which consent gets used. Mm. I've, I've been reading about, um, for the book, I did a research um, on <coughs> some of the issues about the ways in which consent are used in rural India, as well as other places. Rupal Oza has a new paper out and signs this issue that's excellent on that. She's a colleague of mine. And Karen Gruel's work um, has been helpful. And one of the things they've shown and some other, some other work on honor killings that I was looking at is that um, consent gets um, uh, misrepresented and sidelined in various ways so that um, there's a very high bar of consent used when your daughter is interested in a person of a different caste or ethnicity. It's a very high bar <laughs> that's used. And so that you can claim in the courts that she was in fact violated even though she consented 
because she didn't know her own mind. She was crazy. She was in an emotional state, whatever. There's, there's a very high bar that's instantiated in them and that the courts in some cases will respect. Um, and so it's consent gets, is being manipulated um, for purposes that have nothing to do with enhancing sexual liberation for young girls, right? Um, so we have to we have to we have to think that through um, and see see the ways. And what Rupal Oza, who just did this uh, massive uh, work in in a part of rural India, shows is that um, there's there's a lot of false rape claim. There's there's claim there's a claim in the belief that there's a lot of false reports of rape. And normally we would say that's just denial, that's just social denial. But in fact, what her research shows is that the, there are false reports because, uh, which is not uncommon in the West either, and certainly in the past, um, maybe in the present, people will claim rape as a way to avoid acknowledging that they consented to a boy that their parents are not happy with, that sort of thing. So, so both claims of rape and claims of consent are embedded within social systems with caste, with racism, with you know, a variety of things. And, and people on the ground are very smart and they, they figure out how to make use of these terms and concepts that have, that have a certain uptake perhaps in, in the courts, have a certain uptake perhaps in the media um, and they find ways to use these for their own purposes. And I think consent is being used that way um, sometimes in the West to, uh, to deflect um, claims of rape, you know, as well. I mean, it, it, it gets misused. So, so we, have to, we, we have to help, I think, uh, intervene in our public discourses in our, in our own societies about um, to, to, to get, get people to have a more sophisticated understanding of what consent is, how it can be misrepresented, how is it, it is inadequate. And I, you know, I do think that, that this is possible. I, I, I do think that the public, certainly youth cultures, are very interested in you know, what is real liberation. And, uh, can can develop a more sophisticated account. So I think in a way you're right. You start with consent, but it's not just that you move from consent to sexual subjectivity. We also need to have a conversation about consent, um, what it really means, uh, and how it can be misused and is being misused. Um, and 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 the reason we say it's misused is because it doesn't help us get to what we're really after which is something like sexual agency and sexual subjectivity, to have a space for experimentation. I mean, self-protection is absolutely vital because if you have trauma, it, it curtails your, like Luciana, you, it curtails your capacity for experimentation. So there needs to be the creation of safe spaces for experimentation. And that's part of what marginalized cultures and um, youth cultures are trying to create is a space uh, and it may be a space of two people only, or it may be a space of a collective. And that's why there's a lot of calling out of, of sexual harassment and violation that happens within left movements to say, look, 
this is a left movement. It's supposed to be a space in which uh, all can uh, feel like they have the capacity to to have a little room for maneuver, right? A little room for for um, uh, self exploration and so forth. Um, and uh, that's what's at stake here. Thank you, Linda. Uh, we have a question from Sandeep that I'm going to read out. Uh, Professor Linda, thank you very much for your talk. One consideration that I, that I have is regarding the idea of agency in the construction of sexual subjectivity. As the society operates as an agent in constructing ourselves, how do we break out of the necessary loop that we find ourselves struggling in? That is to say, how do we make sense of what you call um, actual consent within such a problematic that the concept of agency puts us in? Yeah, that's good. I, I too have my worries about agency in uh, neoliberal societies. And that's one of the virtues of, of, of making use of Foucault, because Foucault, even though he's developing this concept of, of sexual subjectivity and arts of the self and technologies of the self, he's doing this at the same time in his late writings, where he's also analyzing neoliberal forms of subjectivity that are emerging in which you're supposed to sort of commodify and capitalize on yourself. There's, it, neoliberalism promotes a, a certain approach to self-production, um, self right? In which you, you craft yourself in a certain kind of way to maximize your, uh, maximize your value in, in the society. And then if you don't have the capacity to craft yourself in that way, your own poverty is your own fault, right? That's the neoliberal ideology. So it's really interesting that, that Foucault is working both sides at the same time. He's, he's developing this really smart, um, you know, beginning, he's just beginning critique of a neoliberal subjectivity. So that's not what he's after when he's talking about arts of the self or technologies of the self. Um, you could see the neoliberal self as a technology of the self, right? It is a technology of the self, but it is one that is functional for, um, you know, for capital. It's functional for um, highly unequal societies because it puts the blame on individuals. It's, it's functional for nefarious purposes, and it hasn't really been crafted um, in a collective way, right? Or in a critical way or in a reflective way. So I think um, we can make a number of criticisms of the neoliberal approach to agency um, and the idea of individual agency and the idea that we have agency over, over our, you know, everything that has to do with our lives and therefore are responsible and blameworthy for everything that has to do with our lives. We can make a critique of that even while we continue to use the concept of agency to think about um, a form of participation, right? It's, it's, it, it's not um, sufficient to think about it individually, but as to create communities, marginalized communities, left communities, activist communities that are genuinely participatory. Um, and so agency in that sense of, of, of the ability to enact within uh, a particular space, I think is the, is the alternative kind of view of agency. I don't know if that answers exactly the question, but. Thank you, Linda. Um, is it okay if we take two questions now? 
Yeah, so Lola first and then Kelsey. Hi, can you see me? Um, hi, that is absolutely fantastic. Um, but <clears throat> I have a question in that um, uh, well, uh, I'll, I'll read it to you. Uh, so it says, can the practice of sexual subjectivity, and in that sense, which is reasonable, agentic, and emancipatory, which I think is just so marvelous about your proposal, but can it ameliorate the often unconscious and discursively iterated historical traumas lodged in masculinity and femininity? Thank you, Lola. And Kelsey, do you want to ask? Hi, yes. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, so I don't have a question so much as I'm really hoping for your reflection on something that I've been thinking of. And um, it's just that I feel that something else comes out of this conversation, and that's a question about how we might inhibit ourselves as sexual agents due to a negative internalization of social normativity through this reflective self-to-self -self process that goes on in trying to view ourselves as sexual agents. So if we begin to engage with a process of sexual subjectivity or a more authentic form of consent, then how do the things that occur within our bodies or like throughout a lifetime of experiences, how do these inform our self-cultivation and the self-making process in terms of the way that we view our own sexuality and interaction with it. So I mean, I think that trauma also needs to be reconsidered through a self-to-self -self process because, um, and, and not just consent, because I don't think that our current interpretation of consent or sorry, of trauma actually captures how internalized sexuality or sexual normativity impacts our experiences with sexuality and creating our own sexual identities. So I mean, like, how, how can we, like, reimagine, I suppose, the space of trauma as well in terms of, like, how our bodies create their own trauma? Interesting. Okay, I'll try to um, be responsive but succinct. Um, for Lola, I think this is a you know a critically important question. I you know, and obviously our goal has to be taking power, <laughs> and not just uh, you know reform. So that it would it, it requires you know that there, there's there's serious social revolutions happening. But I think beyond that, our one thing that that feminist philosophy and theory has really um, focused on a lot is the relationality of our identities. So our identities are not formed separately from others. So even toxic masculinity, right, is, is, a rela is relational. And, you know, Beauvoir said this a long time ago, that as women change, men will have to change. So you don't focus on changing men. You, you change women and there will be automatically a change in the way males understand themselves and other genders as well. You know, it works. So I think um, the, the relationality is the reason really how to explain the femicide reactions and the hysterical sort of toxic masculinity reactions to the various kind of gender transformations that are happening in our society because it changes them, changes their self-understanding, their possibilities, and their sense of themselves and, and their rightness. So th that, that is um, one inevitable element 
of of these new movements is it does have an effect and and you have you have a strong reaction because we're making progress in a way right? ah, yes exactly yes, yes exactly so uh unfortunately people lose their lives but it is it is it is um a feature of the process of social change um the question about experience and embodiment and trauma I have a, a chapter in the book because I think this is really important. The nature of experience is, is incredibly complicated. And sometimes feminists are seem to be afraid of the idea that, you know, because conservatives blame feminism for the experience of sexual trauma sometimes. Feminists have exaggerated the effects of these relatively insignificant interactions in our lives. And feminist discourse and language is um, causally responsible for the intensity of our embodied trauma. And I think actually that feminists should not be afraid of recognizing that language is part of the equation here, that embodied responses are profoundly affected by um, languages and cultures that we have available to us. You, the, it's not that you can experience a rape as inconsequential, but you can experience it as, um, as, as just you know, something sad that happened to you or something that's enraging that happened to you because it, it is a feature of social injustice. And those are two quite different forms of trauma that lead to different um sexual subjectivities right so i think language does make a difference even in very physiological physical reactions and embodied experiences of, of very profound events these things are all in in combination what what's interesting is that there different people respond differently to trauma so some some um very brave souls like dorothy allison uh, uh, have written about how she likes um, the use of power and a little bit of sadomasochism in her sexual life as an adult, in part because she was sexually violated as a child. So she goes, she goes there, right? It's it's repetition compulsion if you're a Freudian, but it's it's a repetition in which she is in control, right? In which she is trying to repeat an event that involves some violence and some power, but in which she can um, manipulate it in different ways. Um, and, and it is connected to the, her arousal patterns and her fantasy patterns and her pleasure patterns. That's quite different from you know, some other trauma victims who, um, because of rape trauma, can't go anywhere near those kinds of practices, right? So trauma does not have a uniform embodied um, effect on us and we need um, accounts that will um, not pathologize the one reaction and normalize the other reaction, but recognize you know, that both in a way are trying to enact a form of sexual agency to, to find how to have pleasure, how to have sexual relations again, um, how to have sexual experiences again in a, in a way that, that, that is possible for them. Um, given trauma, and there's going to be different answers to that. So I, I so I think that's um, the question of experience is absolutely critical. It is complicated. We can 
and I think we we have to acknowledge that the experiential effects of any given event are going to be various and um, and and we shouldn't be afraid of acknowledging that feminism, feminist discourses and languages do have an effect on the ways in which people experience harassment and rape trauma. And you know, mostly to good effect, but maybe there's some things that, that, that we're messing up on. So we, we can understand language and experience and embodiment as um, a, a, a flow um, rather, than, uh, rather than one being the, the absolute cause um, or, or another being sort of in this naturalistic realm that is insusceptible to, uh, to alteration on the, on the grounds of the, the languages and discourses that you have available to you. Thank you, Linda. And just take one last question from Chris. Thank you, Hazra. Um, thank you, Linda, for, the, um, for your fascinating paper. Um, I've just been, um, your mention of polyamory earlier got me thinking, and it seems to me that that's, that's actually a great example of the limitation of one of the limitations of consent. Um, because in a, in a poly situation, a very, a very real concern can be what, um, the, the kinds of acts or behaviors that one of your partners may be consenting to with their other partners, um, which you wouldn't necessarily want them to engage in if they put you indirectly at risk, if you understand, if you understand what I mean, if they're consenting to risky behavior. Um, and a problem around that is that you can have conversations with people and, and, and kind of say, I, I consent to you consenting to this, <laughs> for example. But um, as you've so brilliantly explained, um, the, the kind of the individualized uh, modality or whatever of consent in itself means that it's quite difficult to establish um, a kind of uh, a more kind of networked kind of ethic of behaviors um, and you end up thinking like oh I would like to consent to this but would my partner would my other, one of my other partners consent to me consenting to this and would one of their other partners consent to them consenting to me to consenting to this and it all gets very complicated um, so it seems to me that that might be that's that's actually perhaps a good example. What do you what do you think? Yeah, that's a great example. But but I think it's also an example of what's really interesting about um, these uh, sexual communities that are experimenting with these new forms of interaction because it's not about being pro polyamory or anti polyamory, you know. Period. It's it, there's been like this real interesting. Uh, development, right, of thinking it through and thinking about the, the variabilities and the implications and the risks and the downsides plus the upsides of polyamory as well as other kinds of communities engaged in other kinds of things. So it's, you know, this has been this collective process of reflection. There's a little writing, but it's, it's also, you, you see the collective process worked out in um, sometimes public venues, uh, in social media and in and collective communities themselves. And so I, I really think this is what's important. And it's what certainly the heterosexual straight community is learning from um, more marginalized communities as well. I remember when we were debating gay marriage in the United States and, and the conservatives were saying, oh my God, it's going to lead to 
you know, um, uh, polygamy and bestiality and who knows what. And, 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 and in a way, they're right, right? They're right that, that what's going on in marginalized communities, other communities say, oh, that's interesting. What's that about, right? And get new ideas and, and it alters um, their imagination of possibilities of, of sexual experience and sexual lives. So I think that um, that's one really interesting thing about, and you know, and, and there's lots of problems, of course, but, but there's also the spirit of collective experimentation and collective reflection, right? Which has been written about a lot, but that's different from heteronormativity. Heteronormativity did, did not have the spirit of, well, let's think about this. Let's think about what are the effects on this and for whom, um, how, and that's what's different in this moment. Thank you. That gives me, you know, in all the negatives and the trauma and the crisis going on globally, it, you know, it really is true that the youth cultures, they make a lot of mistakes. They drive you crazy, you know, if you're on a college campus half the time. But it's it gives you this amazing hope, doesn't it, about the um, newness of ideas and the willingness to to try out and hold people accountable, but to try out um, new ways of being. Thank you, Linda. That's such a beautiful note uh, to end on, I think. Um, I want to thank you uh, on behalf of all the participants. Uh, it was a really uh, amazing lecture and really thought-provoking and made us all think about sexuality, sexual violence, and the relation of self to self.